0: So uh, we weren't done. Ken Fisher and I continue our conversation about the nature of human nature, about leadership in the technology world and even in the political domains, which whether we like it or not, greatly impact both innovators and stock markets. If you missed part one, that's where you can find my introduction to the storied and successful Ken Fisher, I uh, Ken, you've you've often written about. In fact, you've published articles in academic journals. In fact, you won awards, I mean academic awards, uh, about uh, exploring and describing the realities, of the psychology of markets, business leaders, but of in markets in particular. It's something that matters when it comes to figuring out how technology will impact our future. Well, you you're you know you. Um, again, echo sort of my sentiments and I, I tried to cover some, some of this in my book, but the, the sense that we live in, you know, this best of times, worst of times construct is a psychological construct. That's a form of what, what I call the presentism because you know, people naturally either don't know or forget about what life was like before. It was a really good book written some years ago called The, the Good Old Days. They were terrible. And the, the writer just recounted what everyday life was like on things that we all take for granted, everything from antiseptics to clean water, to plumbing, to <clears throat> the long list of stuff, uh, how tough life was. The best of times are the times we live in and the better times will be the, the times in the future because we've, we we, uh, we use imagination not to invent the tool. Your point is exactly right, which is what I tried to get to again. I'm painting up my book constantly. The technology is important. The invention of the transistor mattered. But what, what mattered more than that was what other people did with it, what other people did with the steam engine, what they did with the car or the internal combustion engine. And it's pretty rare in, in the um, capital markets that the inventor of the technology is successful in making the product the technology makes possible. It's un- it happens, but it's rare. You know, the Wright brothers, for example, which most people don't know had to uh, design and invent a better internal combustion engine. Their insight wasn't so much about the airfoil and airplanes. People knew about that and birds for a long time. The they they combined an internal combustion engine with aluminum block, the first ever lightweight, so high power to weight ratio engine that gave them the ability to fly. And then they decided that what they really wanted to do, it's kind of a funny piece of their history, was make engines and sell them. And they utterly failed at that. I mean, they they had a better engine by by far than anybody had ever built up to that point in terms of the power to weight ratio. And the story is common throughout history. And sometimes they become intels and they're our TSMCs and they make they make the fact that a transistor, a computer chip, rather, is now a commodity as complex as it is, as astonishingly difficult as the art to make. That was my my first job was in designing and manufacturing large scale integrated circuits, and. They're far more complex than Jurassic era when I when I made them, but now they're commodities. I mean, Intel sells a, a device that has billions of transistors on it, made in factories, fabs, that cost billions of dollars to make, require incredible engineering talent. And they're selling something that enables revolutions by other innovators. So the, the point you're making is one where the revolutions come from. The automobile allowed McDonald's to happen. Obviously, McDonald's was not a car company, but using the construct that people have today, tech company Uber is not a tech company. It uses technology. McDonald's would have been called in that construct a car company because, but for the automobiles' mobility, you wouldn't have fast food restaurants, drive-throughs. It's a, um, it's an obvious lesson, but teasing out. Who who the innovator is, the company that's the ascendant company that's figured out how to meet a human desire, need, or create a human desire or need, if you like, Uh, and that will become the sort of the Sears and Roebuck or the Amazon of the next two decades or three decades. I mean, they're they're inevitable, right? Finding which ones those are, those well managed companies where you're sort of betting on the, you're betting on the not just the market, you're betting on the person, as you well know, that this is this is somebody that is right more than they're wrong in how they build out their company. That, that's sort of the magic in markets and looking beyond just the psychology where people are today, saying there's nothing new.
1: Although, as Warren Buffett uh, has famously said, more <laughs> or less, uh, uh, when I great management meets a lousy business model or a lousy management meets a great (laughs) business model. It's the reputation of the that's going to change, not the reputation of the business. (laughs) And uh, the the fact is mostly it's that management setting up the model, right? That's more important than uh, them being otherwise a great tactical manager. And, uh, you you know, to your point about the uh, inventor innovator Typically, the, the, the inventor of the technology not being a great utilizer of commercializing that. Intel really is the exception to that because Bob Noyce was co inventor of the IC. And yep. uh, and and of course, uh, had had a not successful time at Fairchild before he starts Intel. Uh, and so you might have thought at that point in time, boy, the guy's a loser. You know, <laughs> he didn't doing this thing and it's not working. And now we're going to back him again, another one. <laughs> uh, but there is a there is a tendency, I believe, just like there's a tendency for humans to think that the offspring of champion racehorse is going to be a champion racehorse, even though the stats say that's not true. Uh, the uh, there's a tendency for people to believe that the inventor will be able to commercialize it, right. and and yeah. and finding the qualities that actually make a great entrepreneur. That's a trickier. Yep. thing I, I don't really believe that an awful lot of people would have picked uh steve jobs out of the crowd They would have picked elon musk out of a crowd uh you know on and on and on yeah um because a lot of times they're thinking a lot of thoughts that are i mean who would have, who, who as a kid would have picked bill gates out of a crowd well, and <laughs> that's that's a,
0: exactly it's an understatement if you if you look at any you can find videos as you know of of him or or Steve Jobs as a, as a young man. And you wouldn't look at that if you're honest and say, oh, obviously this is gonna be a successful company run by that guy or that gal. Exactly,
1: exactly. No
0: question. Hindsight bias is phenomenal. In the political world, it's the same thing. People in hindsight who happen to like Reagan, as you know, I worked for him, didn't know him. People in hindsight say it was obvious that he was gonna be a great president, to stipulate there are there is a contingent who don't think that but it wasn't obvious before he became reagan that he would be would achieve what he achieved it wasn't obvious by any means uh, it is it, it, it was it was obvious that he was an interesting guy it was obvious that steve jobs was bright right but to your point of setting up a business model and, and you so when i think about managers and when i you know as you know i i do some investing in um, in the in the small Venture world, the private equity world. And we, we look at innovators, small companies, growth stage, tech companies, software companies, principally in the oil and gas business. And you're trying to gauge whether or not that person has the capacity to be uh, an innovator to make something work, right? It's not that they've invented something per se. And you're, you're really, it's a, it's a very interesting problem. It's it's never a challenge to figure out whether the technology really works. That's usually pretty obvious. It's a a valid technology. It has applications. It's it's figuring out whether the person has the capacity to either turn the idea into a company that can grow or, at a different stage, a company that has an idea that's growing, to make it into a business of scale, which is a whole different challenge, and rarely one that the innovator is capable of. It's pretty unusual. Gates was the exception to your point, And Steve Jobs.
1: So on your point about Reagan, i kind of go a different way on Reagan. You know, today, depending on your ideological views, you've got maybe conflicting views on Reagan. But uh, a, a lot of people do think he was a great president. And you know, he was a governor before that, and that's something you can kind of sense. So we yeah. kind of a governor with someone. But I think in politics, because I spend a lot of time studying politics, and I'm <laughs> not and I'm not, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm always trying to bury my own ideology. I have an ideology, but I'm always trying to bury it. I am an ideological libertarian conservative, but I'm always trying to bury that in my analysis. And in that, if you just look at who he's going to run against, the biggest issue to create a great president is not that he's great. Right. It's that he's not a disaster. <laughs> because actually, because, yeah. because yeah. if they're not a disaster, good things tend to happen.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and if they're a disaster, then that tends to accrue to their reputation. That's true. So <laughs> when you think of oh, Reagan, and this is not a criticism of the man. Yeah. He's running against a guy initially who's already uh, documented that he wasn't very good at doing it.
0: Right. right.
1: And, then, and, then, and then the second time around, he's up against a vice president. Now, yeah. I will just state to you that I can only think of one vice president in history who became president who didn't go down after that to be seen as a bloody disaster one way or another whether it's Martin Van Buren yeah. or, uh, you know, whether it's Lyndon Johnson or whether, you know, I mean, if Walter Mondale had become president, I mean, you could, you could extend this current yeah. president, yeah. Uh, the uh, Richard Nixon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I got to know Richard Nixon a little, very, very late in his life. And he was a little old man at the time. And he was very nice as a little old man. And I have no idea what his reality was when he was president. Um, but little people are often, uh, you know, <laughs> gi- giving you a sense of what's truly in their emotion. And, uh, he was probably a nice little boy in some ways and little, but the world twists us around him. Maybe he wasn't as an adult on his prime. I don't really know. I can't go there, but what I can say is that only Truman, uh, didn't end up with a totally bad reputation, right? I mean, a- Andrew Johnson, sure. you just yeah. go down the list of these yeah. vice presidents and, uh, the fact is, when somebody runs against a vice president, they're probably or or a failed president, they're probably going to come off as an okay president.
0: Yeah, true. Well, you know, it, it's that's actually a, a an a, an incredibly important point. Um, the one lesson I learned as a young man when I was working in the White House Science Office, I was very young. Um, and the the thing that that I just that that I I, I guess I would say I, I I evolved more of a libertarian sense at that time as well, for this for this reason that you you one begins to learn, one hopes that economies and markets are incredibly complex. Not just the psychology of them; everything they're complex. If you want to call it a complex machine, the complexity is impossible to model. If it were easy to model, then there'd be somebody who would model it, and it would be they'd be a trillionaire, right? It's obviously difficult, and the idea that any, any government official, whether a monarch or a president, any, regu- any any single small group or one person has the capacity to know what knobs to turn or switches to switch is obviously a level of hubris that defies imagination. So leaving a good system alone, even though it's never perfect, this is the classic Adam Smith sort of view or Hayekian view of markets. But I I was intrigued to your point about Reagan and i agree with you he he ran against somebody who was was fated to lose for, for a variety of reasons not least
1: because he, he hadn't been a good president
0: exactly but the reason he hadn't been a good president as you know if we look at the policies of wage and price controls and the, the you know all the things that were going on at the time as he was when carter was president and it's not a criticism of him as a man i'm talking about his policies so reagan was was teed up to be uh, you know win but he, when in the, when I was there, I know I, I didn't meet, again, I didn't meet with them because that was an adult White House. They didn't have kids meet with the president. Um, but I, I do know that in the meeting in, that was held with the cabinet, and this was at the time of the beginning of the computing revolution that we, we now know as the computer revolution in the early 80s, with the ascendance of Apple and, and the PCs and all the rest, that Japan was launching uh, in the, ministry, the, MIDI, the Ministry of Industry and Trade was launching a multi-billion dollar effort to, quote, leapfrog America's computing. And Reagan was being importuned by all of his advisors, these were, quote, conservatives and the the more liberal conservatives, that the United States had to launch a counter effort to to beat Japan in the race to the future of computing. And I was told firsthand that what he said was, I don't know what the future is gonna look like with computers, but I do know one thing, none of you do, and so we're not we're not going to support. I'm not going to sign any legislation that's going to uh, do that. We're going to we're just going to let the market function. And you know we have innovators in America. words that affect. But it was the fact that, to your point, he stayed out of the way. That was the key. It was he let the markets function, and for that he gets credit for the beginning of one of the long booms. But it was because he at least had let's call it the instinct. It doesn't have to be wisdom. Just to 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 at least know. They just stay out of the way. It's just, just well, don't
1: want to paint it. There's two points there. One is you know going back to the medical principle first, do no harm. Yeah. and um, that's a that's a pretty basic one. You know, if you're not really pretty confident of where things will go one way or another, maybe you better not do it. And uh, uh, number you know n- number two, if things have been going badly in a policy sense. Whatever that means, yeah. and you're the anti force, then capitalism, once you implement the anti force, will actually make things work out pretty well over yeah. a reasonable period of time. Yeah. And that's the part where you don't really have to be the greatest person because the world will figure out if the policy anti force needs to occur.
0: Yeah.
1: And then uh, if, if you're just the, the carrier of the anti force, uh, to the to the bad policies yeah. uh, everything else will start to get better you know it's, it's 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 but but you know a lot of times in politics you know, it's a little like a pendulum yeah. and so you get the the bad stuff yeah. happening yeah. Yeah. that swells the popularity of the anti-force yeah uh and then uh you get that benefit and then of course you know that can run too long and if you take uh, an awful lot of members of either party, and give them an opportunity, they will go uh, demonstrate their exceptional capability to find something stupid to do. Well, and, of and, course, they will. <laughs> and, and and in doing that, uh, then you get the enforce the other way. You know, but if you just take you know, for example, and I don't want to get into it too much because there's always people who get upset about this stuff. But <laughs> course, you know, if if you take both election, <laughs> if, if you take the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. There was a lot of anti-force against the concept of Hillary yep. Clinton and an extension of, of the Obama policies. Right. If, you, right. if you look at the election of President Biden, there was clearly an anti-force against Donald Trump. Yep. Uh, and if you look at what's going to happen uh, in November at the midterms, it's clearly an anti-force against uh, President Biden. And that anti-force part, a lot of those people, a lot, enough to make a difference that you know, voted for President Biden. Will this November vote to elect Republicans in Congress? And Laura Lee knows uh, what happens in a couple of years after that, because we can predict that with any kind of precision, but there'll be uh, anti-forces one way or another. And to some extent, if you're the beneficiary of the anti-force uh, that is appropriate at the point in time, and your party's carrying you forward with that as a Republican or a Democrat, uh, and you get elected, and your parties have got power, and you implement the anti-force. The other good things that come from basically innovation, the private sector, et cetera, yep. et cetera, carry you forward, and you begin to look like you're a pretty good president. Yeah,
0: well, it does. It does make one tempted to coin a phrase: "May the anti-force be with you."
1: I think that's. I think that's good.
0: <laughs> we, we we won't steal uh, Lucas's line, but you know you're you're, you're right. It, but here's the, the the challenge, and I think that. Uh, it, it maybe we can evoke the the reagan period if if the anti-force wins and the ruling party which in this case obviously would be the republicans if the anti-force is with them which it seems to be if they manage to be just a a, a soup song libertarian just a little bit to leave to leave the markets alone the, i'm i am to you know to evoke the title of my podcast i'm the optimist here because the The forces of innovation that are in play now, the things that innovators will do with the technologies that are now available to them that have been invented by other people earlier, the equivalent of the invention of the transistor or the computer or whatever happened, whatever technology we choose to, to evoke from the previous times. But we're sitting at, I think, on the cusp of some extraordinarily exciting innovation opportunities for using the new technologies, that going back
1: to the central point of your book,
0: yeah, and what a wonderful time it. The trick will be, and you, 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 like I have been in many of these meetings in Washington, uh, where the tables when you're sitting down or you're with a person of influence, let's say a senator or a congressman or a cabinet officer or sub cabinet mm-hmm. officer, and these people have a lot of power as you as you know, but their principal power is. And and I'll say it again: It's sort of it's, it's resisting the temptation of the government to quote solve whatever problem they think they want to solve, but to let the markets operate properly or as as much as is humanly possible. I mean, I'm not as you as a you probably know, I'm not anti-regulatory in the sense of. Regulations like rules of the road, you know, track gauge regulations being the famous one or some safety regulations. We, human beings do that. We have good reason to do that. But they, they, they as you know, they go this, this, this slippery slope that, you know, the, it's like a, a version of slouching, you know, slouching to, to uh, into uh, into the abyss of I know how to control things because I can regulate some things that make sense. Whenever either party decides that they know the answer and they're going to fund X or regulate Y in the ways, that's when we get into trouble. It's when, when we end up getting slow growth or we end up stimulating, a, I guess I would say, a recession or the kind of problems that we're facing. So I, I'm, up, I'm hopeful for whatever reason that the, we'll call it gridlock. I mean, that was sort of the thing I decided was nice when I learned when I was in the Reagan White House is when I saw gridlock, I decided that was good. If you could, if you could leave, it, as bad as things are, if you just leave them alone and don't change them, because generally Congress makes things worse, not they don't generally make things better. Just leave it alone. Markets can work around uh, what you, the mess you've made, and innovators will adapt and expand and do things and give you a good economy. Give you give and, growth and of them.
1: course, and, and of course, you know I've written ad nauseum for a very long time about how the stock market actually both pre-prices and continues to price uh, the implementation of gridlock in a positive way and that the movements of the stock market associated with gridlock are uh, a measurable metric for the benefit of gridlock uh, on the ability of the restraint that gridlock provides against one party as a form of an anti-force to allow the rest of the world to wiggle around whatever problems have been created exactly. to and the market pre that i yeah. mean the history the history of um the fourth quarter of a, of a midterm year
0: yeah
1: moving positive yeah in in the history of the s p 500 yeah. is 80 uh and with Fairly big numbers, and then that ripples over into the third year of a president's term, because that's of course you know when gridlock gets actually effectuated as opposed to just anticipated. And again, the market's pre-pricing always. So that part, you know, there's there's relative gridlock and absolute gridlock, and uh, and then you know relative strength of gridlock. So the reality is midterms almost always increase relative gridlock. And sometimes give you absolute gridlock. And uh, the fact is, both of those are weighed positively by uh, the stock market, and uh, is one of those things because we all believe that we are ideologically right, and the other guys ideologically wrong.
0: Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, and,
1: we, and we believe that very vehemently. Exactly. And 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 since the arrival of the internet, a lot of that vehemence has gotten even more strong and more disrespectful of anyone yep. who's disagreed with us, whatever yep. that is. Yep. Uh, we have a near impossible time seeing how it can go well if what we want isn't implemented in law and even worse if what those other people want is implemented <laughs> in law. So if what those other people want is the cessation of what we have wanted, boy, oh boy, that's, that's bad and because we all categorically hate losses more than we love gains. Yep. That notion of oh my god, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm suffering losses, and of course that's put into a midterm year typically before you get to um, the midterms yep. because those fears are there. You know, yep. if, if if we take from me to give to you, I hate it more than you like it, and and the anticipation of taking from me to give to you is going to make me hate it more than you're going to like it because you're not sure you're going to get it in the first darn place, and. Uh, and, and that impact has a fairly strong uh, history in midterm election years of having a volatile and a little bit negative first half of a midterm year that yeah. translates into a positive back half led particularly by that fourth quarter that's pre-pricing the outcome of the election and then the effect of what gridlock will actually accomplish when those legislators aren't even in position yet, the uh, newly elected ones. Yeah, it's, it's a it, it's it's an amazing phenomena. It's going back to the principle of first, do no harm.
0: And You know, the fact that it has uh, and I want to emphasize what you, you, you said, that the 80 percent correlation looking backwards, that's obviously means there's 20 percent of the times it doesn't happen. But 80 percent correlation, I mean, this is huge uh, in 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 uh, in complex systems and highly predictive, not guaranteed, and and that was the, simply the most interesting. I mean, you said this on some of your video podcasts or video casts on you know the, the social media. You
1: know, most, most people after they watch one will never watch another one. <laughs> well, I re- I highly recommend people. You, watch. you must you must have an exceptional tolerance of pain. <laughs>
0: I do, I do. In fact, I have a I have a I have a high appetite to to, uh, to learn and like to think, but I do commend that, that people do find your your brief video cast on this stuff because the, you, you know when I try to think about the near and long term, the near term, of course, in, in the stock market psychology, the correlation you talk about, it, it's just a fact. Anybody can look this up. So you have this current fraught time. We're focused on whatever the issued a jurist, some Supreme Court decision. And and the reality is, as I said, I learned in the Reagan White House that gridlock was my friend. In fact, what what I did learn, I learned uh, on a personal basis, that if there was a piece of legislation making its way through Congress, and I, you know, in the science office is sort of a backwater. I worked in the science offices, you know, and it's, it's not a high profile agency, but it allows you to, to, to go anywhere you want. Once you're in, you know, you, you have a badge and, a, and you can go around to different meetings and you could be empowered with learning what people were planning to do, both on the Hill and other, other, uh, and other uh, departments. And what I discovered is, is if I, as a young man, I was a very young guy, could do something, I mean, something legitimate that would throw sand in the gears. I mean, if I could slow down a piece of legislation that was coming, just one guy, one young guy, then probably that's legislation that shouldn't happen, right? It just shouldn't happen. Gridlock was good. So I, I learned that my primary job was to throw sand in the gears of the system that was trying to march to get something done. Because if it was of overwhelming importance, a war we couldn't avoid, somebody attacked us, well, whatever the thing is, then you know, you're know you gonna get run over, right? Congress is gonna do something. They just, it just does. But gridlock was 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 the, was your friend. You wanted to slow it down. And, and then it got me thinking, because I, I grew up in Canada. I didn't thought a lot about the American Constitution. I grew up in a parliamentary system. And the, the brilliance of the framers in creating a system, and I think not enough Americans appreciate this, that sort of has built in gridlock. The fact that they are ostensibly three co-equal branches of government that can, in effect, throw sand in the gears of the works of the other branches, which is a form of stability. It's just... It, it it the do no harm comes into play here, where whatever damage you've done before, the markets tend to be like rivers flowing around rocks. They eventually figure out how to get around, get around that rock you put there, and keep flowing. And so just stop, stop putting more rocks in the river, which is what I think of most legislation is. And it uh, and and if and if we live at a time where it's possible that will happen, I think it will. I think we're going to face more gridlock, which I think to be practical and sound cynical is good. And we live at a time when the flow of innovation is epic. We just have this incredible amount of stuff going on. And then you change the psychology. So you talk a lot about the psychology of markets. What I was intrigued by in my book is I read more about the psychology of innovation broadly, about economies. And you know that I quoted Joel Moikier, who is an economic historian that I He's one of these econ- economists that I admire. There are a lot of economists I don't particularly admire in terms of their insights, but he's he's one of the handful that I personally admire. And he began his his most recent book, which he called The Enlightened Economy, which I thought was a good, a good title because you you use the phrase enlightenment a lot. Be, his very first sentence in that book was that economic growth, and he was talking broadly, not about the America particularly, depends and I And he wrote, it depends more than most economists think on what people believe. It was an incredible observation because he looked you know, over the span of history is that that you can look at all these other indicators and the indicator that he thought mattered a a lot. He didn't say it was the only indicator that mattered, but one that economists tend to discount is what people believe. And of course, that's obviously true in stock markets. It's, It's like a microcosm of the broader markets belief system.
1: So an interesting tangent to the belief part going back to capital markets is in theory and reality that the way you're to make money in markets is to be right more than you are wrong, (laughs) uh, as opposed to the reverse, which most people are wrong more than they are right because of what we talked about earlier, where they're making all the decisions based on what everyone else has already spent their money on. And therefore, not to sustain the price further in that direction. In that, there's a limit to what history helps you with, because that's the central feature of capital markets theory and reality is that the way you make money in markets is to know something other people don't know and bet on that, mm-hmm. which is non-trivial, hard to do. Yep. Uh, and once upon a time in a world long ago, and I've written about this often, but I'm in a articulate in a different way here today. A long time ago data was hard to get. Yep. So if you could scour data in a way to find something useful, let's say from history, x causes y with a high correlation coefficient, that'd be real useful. Increasingly as data has become ubiquitous, cheap, easy to access and manipulate, the reality is and you know one of my uh, senior guys, uh, Jeff Silk came up with this line uh, some years ago. It becomes what he calls an ABCD. Anybody can do it, and once you get to anybody can do it, then it becomes commonly believed. Yeah, and if it's commonly believed, well, then it is pre-priced. So therefore, even though you got this long history from 1919 to you know 19. 99, where, you know, there's a 87% correlation between X and Y, uh, and, you know, that gives you confidence that it should prevail. People are trying to find that stuff and quants are out there working really hard to find yep. that stuff. Yep. And what you have to do always is say, okay, so I think I found something other people don't know, but how do I know that they don't? <laughs> exactly. If I could find it. How do I know that they haven't found it already yeah. and that I'm not betting on the same nonsense that they're already betting on? And one way to help with that is to see what's all the nonsense that they're saying in media at a point in time, because yeah. media tends to perpetrate, you know, what, what, what's commonly thought. But, um, but again, a lot of these quants are all at the same time doing all the same stuff, yeah. trying to find all the same magic. Yeah. And trade off of it, And they aren't talking to media they're just trading so i mean it's a it's a tricky world and for the most part this is the argument that says first do no harm for your own investments yeah and for the first do no harm for your own investments the question to keep asking yourself all the time is do i know something other people don't know or am i just putting my opinion up against the other person's opinion based on the same things that everybody else knows And why am I so arrogant as to presume that my opinion on the same things everybody else knows matter more? And, uh, you know, have I actually dug to find something that's important matters somehow that can impact pricing that I can be pretty confident other people don't know. And that's a tall order and most people will never get there. And a lot of people who think they're getting there will be wrong. And, so that requires a lot of self-discipline and restraint and a lot of checking your ego at the door because it's very I mean, you know, I spent most of my life being arrogant, thinking that I know something other people don't know. <laughs> join and, the, join and, the club. <laughs> and, and, and and the market's the market's yeah. gonna tell you after the fact. It doesn't tell you in the moment. It can tell yeah. you after the fact if you were right or not.
0: That's that's why you have your great line, the great humiliator. It's it's and you know, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing because. Uh, you, you put your finger on both the, pr- the, the the personal practical in the sense of if you, so many of us are investors, right? Or directly or indirectly, you know, we all, as you know better than I do. So many people's retirements are tied up in the stock, uh, stock market or stock indices, or if not directly, indirectly. But a lot of people trade. I mean, we go through these cycles where there's an awful lot of individual traders making bets. And re- we've seen a lot of that recently. And, that we, and again, it's Fad when markets are going up, everybody's a genius because they can buy stocks that go up, and <clears throat> they get afraid when they go down. Everybody's a seller. All that psychology. But I, on, on a personal note, what I guess the humbling came to me because I I bought stocks, as you might imagine, you probably can guess. And in hindsight, I looked back and said, and I was really wrong. And I and I try to, I try to separate myself from the emotion of time and analyze why did I do that. And generally speaking, when I've about something that really was a bad bet it's because it was in an area where I I just didn't know enough. And I thought I did, it's sort of, and I've used the Dunning Kruger curve before, as you know, in in lectures. And I I think I put it in my book uh, where, you know, you you know, enough to think, you know, that you're confident in your, in the, in the, and then, and so you act on that. And then as you learn a little more, your confidence erodes rapidly and you have this, this long, uh, slow slope back up to confidence again. And, but when you have an area where you, let's say you, you are an expert, like you just, you know enough, it's not, I don't mean from an arrogant viewpoint, but it's because of the work you put in. It's like becoming a master carpenter. You can actually do carpentry, but you can't weld. And you know you're a good carpenter. So it's not an arrogant thing to say you know you're a good carpenter, but transferring the carpentry knowledge to welding isn't so easy. You may have dexterity, but you're not a good welder. It's the same is true in any uh, domain, in, in stocks or technology. So. Uh, When I've I've discovered something, and I think the markets don't know, and to the point you made earlier, and I I may write about it because, I mean, I can trade on, I can buy stock in the thing that I think the markets don't know. That's harder because the markets may be wrong about the fact, but they may take so long to discover it that my my play as an investor could be too early and wrong because the markets are going to take, let's just say, for an example, five years to figure out that I'm right. Well, that's a tough bet in stocks. You have to be a very patient
1: person. But, entrepreneurialism
0: well that's it that's this is the exactly this is the Steve Jobs the the Bill Gates In fact,
1: the, look at all the people look at all the people that in the early uh, 50s and 60s were starting laser companies
0: oh I well laser my my favorite subject in fact I helped start a laser company by the way we haven't talked about it. So this. did I so did, did I.
1: You, well, we have to talk about this I started <laughs> a, I started a yag laser company once upon a time no kidding no well, no we, kidding I didn't know that, and it, was, and it was and it was successful.
0: Well, I will. I can't vote on success of my laser company, which is more recently started than yours. It's a blue laser company. Uh, I will say the name because it's private still, called Nuburu. But the uh, in the pantheon of lasers, as you know, the color blue is, uh, has been uh, very, very recently achieved, and, and the wavelength matters in lasers. It has different uh, physics phenomenology, and getting high power blue is particularly tantalizing if you can do it. Anyway, the, the, the gentleman who's done this blazer company is just a, one of these people who knows how to build companies, just good at engineering and making things happen, which is why I bet on him personally. But when you think about back to the macro thing, I think I linked to a, a YouTube a URL in my book. I've done this in other articles to a speech that Steve Jobs gave very early on in his career when he was okay reasonably successful not the, not the man he became later and he talked it was a lecture in um I think it was in it was in it might have been Copenhagen but it was in Europe at a university it was a small lecture happened to be videotaped and he talked about the future of computing and you you watch this in hindsight now you watch this young man he I think he was maybe 30 at the time talking about what computing was going to become his imagination I, I mean I mean in hindsight, you're blown away how prescient and and, and, and accurate he was. But I know for a fact, because I, I remember because I was alive then as a sentient young adult, no one thought he was that smart. You know, yeah, the Apple IIE was a you know big deal, and but it was sort of culty. It wasn't, you know, IBM was the beast, and that's why that very famous 1984 commercial that he had made where they you know threw the hammer in the 1984 style at the the big jumbotron that was IBM, big blue, but no one knew, right? This, is, this was the, the, um, the innovator that had that, all that spark. I don't know. I went off on a tangent here because the, the thing that's fascinating to me here is he knew he was right and pursued it, right? And, and he had the domain knowledge. You as the outsider, if you wanted to bet on him, whether it was a public stock, which it, it became public, I think it was 80, 1980. It's 81, 80, 1980, Apple went public. You would have been a genius to buy $10,000 of Apple stock in 1980 and hold it to today, or $1,000 worth to be worth millions.
1: And you might have bought Osborne Computer instead.
0: Or you might have bought Wang, or Digital Equipment, or Burroughs,
1: right? <laughs> and you, who, could bought, you could have bought one of a, a, a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, other computer startups, um, yeah. mostly CPM systems that went, you know down yep and i mean it's a it's a tough go you yeah. you, you know that g- going back to the point about how much do you know so i i have an older brother who uh is <laughs> retired now of course was a phd historian hmm. uh, and uh while he was getting his phd he's working part-time doing this doing that and and he was partner of mine for a while Uh, A long, long time ago, and he decided he didn't want to continue because his point was that in history, when you're a historian, you don't make up your mind about something until long later, with all of the facts you can gather. Right. In markets, you (laughs) have to make up your mind in advance with about twenty-five percent of the facts that you could gather. You just have to somehow know which are the right ones to know yeah what matters and what doesn't and that that in a dynamic world of chaos and changing circumstances is non-trivial uh and 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 that part of you have to make up your mind knowing 25 percent of the facts roughly and which are they and what matters and what doesn't I mean, that's a higher level of arrogance
0: <laughs> it is well and of course the arrogance might be deserved because it might be that you actually do know but by and large you're right it's a lot of hubris to think you really really
1: don't. well if if you do and if you say you will be presumed as arrogant by anyone that disagrees with you and number 2 uh, all of those not all of those that's wrong many of those who will be most vocal in disagreeing with you having their own views will also be arrogant
0: sure uh, well and it's and of course this may be a good, a good note to, uh, to close our, our, uh, our, our, our far-ranging uh, explorations of the nature of markets and psychology of technology. That, that, to me, uh, you know, when people who are, let's, let's say, arrogant, but willing to argue or talk, as opposed to just engage in ad hominem or dismiss you, that's when you really do learn stuff. I mean, the investment managers that I've known that have been successful are the ones that engage uh, those who disagree with them and listen to them. And they may not agree with them, but they'll actually listen because what you're trying to tease out is whether they do they in fact know something that I missed. And as you hear them talk other than attack you for personal reasons or because they have an ideological banter, they have a dog in the race, as it were, or whatever. It is at some point to, to your point, you can never get perfect knowledge. But as you have that argument or debate, whether you're reading other people's viewpoints, which I, I try to do, I, I mean, I really do. I, when somebody comes out with a report or an article that's orthogonal to something that I be- believed, and I, and I think I, generally my view has been, and I think I'm, I think I'm being honest in saying this, is it's sort of an oh shite moment to use the Irish expression. Maybe they know something, I don't know, I better read this because it's, it's not, I hate being wrong. I've been wrong a lot. You just hate it, it's a bad feeling. So you read it and then as you read it you realize there's nothing new here. It, it, the more often that happens in a, in a, in a topic area, the more, the more confidence you get that you might have, you might have the right answer and you can act on it. The good investment managers that I've known <clears throat> and I was affiliated as, you, as I think you know for a while with a hedge fund. And I was fascinated watching how the operator, owner and you know, the head of the hedge fund operated. He really did engage and listen and read and then took actions. And he was an arrogant guy, but he should be. He was, he was right more than he was wrong and very successful. But that was, to me, the, the, the key characteristic. So the, the, the successful investors do that, right? And they, they understand the psychology of markets. And they also know that it's imperfect. Um, what, I, what, I, um, what I find fascinating about how you approach Stock market is, and I, I'm not saying this as a, well, I am saying it as a compliment, but I don't mean it as a curing favor compliment. Is that you visibly try to step back from the psychology of what's going on and ask the questions about what's happening, what the patterns are, what whether this is a this is a moment of uh, you know peak psychosis or whether the, the, those things doesn't mean you're getting it right all the time. It's just that's the discipline that's required. And, it's, and if there's a common denominator in investment books that I've read or articles, it's, it's that one, is that to recognize the psychology of the markets, not that we aren't naturally emotional human beings, but recognize it is the first step towards recovery, if you like. It's kind of like recognizing that you're an addict is the recovery to, to, from addiction. Recognizing that you're addicted to your arrogance is the first recovery from the arrogance.
1: Well, I think that's a great summation, Mark. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I do appreciate you having me on. It's always good to talk to you. Someday we ought to have a conversation about uh, laser companies we both separately uh, started. But that's a whole different conversation for another time when we're not doing, going to do that in podcast mode. We, uh, yeah. And uh, so thank you for having me.
0: Well, we will talk about laser companies because I love lasers for all kinds of reasons. Um, they're just an existentially bizarre technology, one of the weirdest things that humanity has ever invented. Uh, you can go full theological, philosophical on entropy and all kinds of things when it comes to lasers. But but anyway, we will do that. It'd be fun. Maybe do a podcast on lasers one day. That'd be, that'd be kind of fun. It would take people deep down a rabbit hole of the intersection of physics, psychology, theology, entropy, and investing. Just a lot of people made a lot of money on
1: lasers. And uh, anyway, a lot, of, I, a, lot of, a lot of people lost a lot of money too.
0: I, I would dare say more of the latter than the former.
1: <laughs> That's pretty normal. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Mark.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Ken. Um, appreciate it very much. And uh, we'll be seeing I you soon. appreciate
1: you. You're the best.
0: So as always, permit me to close by saying that if you're enjoying these podcasts, please spend a few minutes to give us a favorable rating in the usual places. And also as always, feel free to send questions, comments. I might even answer them. <laughs> I, do, I do plan in a future podcast to have a, an episode devoted to answering questions. And with that, until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist.